Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This has been a busy week in the world of political news, so we're shaking things up this week. First, we've got a roundtable discussion with Andy Paven and Hugh Drummond from our office, talking all things Iowa, New Hampshire, and primaries to come. Then we've got an interview with Dave Paleologos, local pollster from Suffolk University, who took time out of the week to talk his most recent polls and predictions for the next couple of weeks. And then, of course, Two Minutes with Tom. First up, I sit down with Andy Paven and Hugh Drummond. Hello, gentlemen. I am joined here by Hugh Drummond and Andy Paven from our office. Welcome to Studio 108. Thanks, Thank Kaya. <laughs> we are here to talk this week in politics. Uh, we've got Iowa behind us. Um, kind we, of. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. It's supposed to be behind us. Should have been. Um, we have a president who was acquitted of impeachment uh, this week, and now we have New Hampshire coming on Tuesday, February 11th, for anyone who doesn't know. So let's talk a little bit about where we're at. Now, generally speaking, Iowa has been what people look to to look, you know, kind of make a prediction for New Hampshire, but we still don't truly know how Iowa has been, is going to pan out. Where does that, where does that leave us? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting is historically what Iowa has done has been able to uh, help winnow the field and then secondly, to give the winner or someone that's beat expectations a balloon dropping moment, a plane flight to, to New Hampshire, and you have then seven days. And of a fundraising a, windfall. Fundraising windfall, right? A bump. Seven days of, of great campaigning, and you try to carry that momentum forward. Mm-hmm. And that really didn't happen for anyone. And, right. and so I think that's, yeah. that's kind of a, a unique situation. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't immediate, and Iowa clearly is a mess. Um, and I think we won't try to delve into all those details because mm-hmm. we use up all the time we have. Um, but I do think even though it was delayed, clearly um, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders came out of Iowa as at, in a different position mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the field. And importantly... Senator Warren and Vice President Biden come out of Iowa with some challenges Mm -hmm. in front of them. That perhaps they and others weren't really expecting. It made New Hampshire more important for both both of them, I think. Definitely. Definitely. So, Hugh, you talked to Dave Paleologos this week, and one of the things that um, Dave had said in a recent article talking about his polls was that we're getting into the point where, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, it's really about, like, who's having the best 24 hours because it's the, the... well, until Iowa, I guess. So many of the differences were within the margin of error, so it really could go either way. It was who's having an up day and who's having a down day could, you know, on any given day really change the the direction. And is that, do you think that's still the case for New Hampshire, or did Iowa kind of blow all that up? Well, it, the, the one thing I think is interesting about New Hampshire is that uh, in New Hampshire, independents can vote in the primary. In Iowa, we're talking about just Democratic voters, and even within that, it's a real subset of, of Democrats that turn out. You know, you get, some, you get some young people at the college campuses, and then you have some traditional groups. In New Hampshire, there's a real opportunity to swing independents, and so campaigns that have um, maybe broader appeal have an opportunity to to attract some um, non-traditional Democratic voters mm-hmm. to, to the mix. 
That being said, the um, we still have a several people in the race, so you're you're splitting this group, uh, the, this voting block up among many people instead of what would happen historically is you have a, a more narrow field that actually looks viable coming out. Yeah, Does what, anyone what, know how many we still have? I can't. I really can't keep track of Well, we can name them if you want, yes. <laughs> how many are we still Sanders, have? Buttigieg, Warren, Biden, Steyer, Bloomberg. Patrick Klobuchar. is still out there. Andrew Yang is still out there. Klobuchar. And Klobuchar, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to leave her off. Nine's a lot to go into Hampshire. Nine's a lot to go into Hampshire, but I, I think this, the 24-hour idea is, is important. I really believe, and it's hard to tell because I haven't been on the ground up there, I really believe that the narrative is set for New Hampshire, and the narrative that came out of Iowa is Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders. And at this point in that narrative, Buttigieg occupies Vice President Biden's space as the more moderate Mm -hmm. candidate, whereas Sanders and Warren are still competing for generally the same block of votes. And what what Dave said, and what what listeners will hear when that during that interview is he he talks about um, geography and generation. And geography, you have, uh, well, Elizabeth Warren is a Massachusetts senator mm-hmm. right next door. Deval Patrick, Massachusetts governor right next door. But, but more importantly, Sanders, longtime senator in Vermont, played well in New Hampshire in, in previous yeah. campaigns, played strongly, and attracts the youth vote mm-hmm. in, in, you know, really unexplainable ways in my view but yeah. but anyway he does and yeah. so yeah, geography the th- yeah the 37 generation. year old candidate for some reason has not become the darling of younger voters and that i think goes back to you saying he's kind of fills the same space as biden that his policies are moderate he he does yeah. not present as that you and he's more of a technocrat he's it. not he doesn't he, he strikes me you know there's two kind of candidates some that some that react from the heart and some that react from the head and Buttigieg primarily is an intellectual candidate, mm-hmm. not an emotional candidate. Yeah. He, he, he has enough personality and has enough deep personal feelings that there is that side to him. But in general, it's not, you're not attracted to him through heat and passion. You're attracted through, to him because— That's always how I get mine. Well, he's so, <laughs> right. He's so bloody. Well, you know, there is the saying, you fall in love during the primaries, and then you, you know, figure out who you, who you need to vote for in the, in the general election. And he has not been the guy that young voters have fallen in love with in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So we come out of New Hampshire a week from now, and it, it'll be interesting because the, the next contest is a, is a caucus, Nevada, um, where Sanders played very well in 2016. And then what follows that is another open primary in South Carolina. Both Nevada and South Carolina are, are contests where you will have a significant participation from minority populations. Mm-hmm. And we know that certain campaigns, Joe Biden being one of them, has, has, is still polling very strongly in South Carolina. And it will be interesting now that, I mean, we have the, the primary season starts off with Iowa and New Hampshire, which are not demographically representative of the, in, of the party, uh, or, or of the, the United States, yeah. and um, and you know it is what it is. But now you'll move into contests that do have mm-hmm. that factor, and it will be interesting to see how that 
plays yeah. out. And the other factor that will happen is that the national political reporters, it, 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 not even necessarily consciously, will want to winnow the field Yeah, coming out of New Hampshire. You, I, I, it's got to be exhausting. It's got to be exhausting, and it, it, it's you a know, lot to cover. And there are wild cards in this one because there are a couple of guys in the race who can stay in this race as long as they want, just by reaching into their own wallet, right? Tom yep. Steyer and, and and Bloomberg. You so okay. it will be harder. They they can't. There's nobody. There's nothing. Reporters' coverage can do. Right. Well, and after to stop and that. after 2016, that the whole idea of the the candidate that you never thought to make it has been turned upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Republican Party yeah. and, you know, to many within the Trump camp will say never expected to yep. win the presidency or, you know, or the party. So it, yeah. it that changed things. You wouldn't see game? Tom Steyer running for president had had Donald Trump not won the mm-hmm. presidency four years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's going to give candidates sort of that extra. There's going to be something in the back of their minds that they don't bow out perhaps as early in the process as for as they may have in, mm-hmm. in the past because people can believe anything's possible right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's also interesting the the boston globes are running little endorsements uh not written by the editorial mm-hmm. board but by individuals and um the editorial board actually made the decision not to have an endorsement in the primary which is they would normally do it this mm-hmm. week uh, when New Hampshire was staying out there, I uh, even the Times didn't pick one. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I go back to our list odd. of candidates. I think we we forgot to mention Senator Michael Bennett. <laughs> but, You're right, I did. But, uh, a very decent, smart man. Very, very. So that's with no chance of winning the presidency. See, it wasn't Sorry. just me yeah, that yeah. didn't know the number. Yeah. So the other thing <laughs> that you start to see now is um, certain candidates realize that they probably aren't going to be the nominee, but are there things they can do to perhaps be on the ticket? Mm-hmm. in November, and are there uh, deals, are there Shore vice presidential kind of uh, aspirations that, that will come out? And then, um, you know, I talked about South Carolina a few minutes ago, but one of the things that's interesting about that open primary in South Carolina, I think it's the Hill newspaper in, in D.C. reported that the uh, GOP um, leaders in, in South Carolina are already encouraging uh, uh, independent voters to vote for Bernie Sanders to help mess up or muck up the the uh, mm-hmm. Democratic outcome. Yeah. So, uh, last, at work. last yeah. thoughts and takeaways? Or well, fun there's, predictions? There's Who silence. wins New Hampshire? <laughs> Who wins New Hampshire? Uh, Sanders. See, if I, had, if I had to bet today, I think it's Pete Buttigieg. You see, you see momentum. You see movement. Um, you have a you have a pool of voters that he can draw from, meaning people who have historically supported Vice President Biden, and you know we'll have to decide firmly mm-hmm. in the next few days whether they'll continue that. Um, but I could see, you know, we have seen over the course of decades, once in a while, a candidate come out of Iowa with some momentum, even though Iowa didn't turn out the way mm-hmm. it was intended to this year. And if I had to guess, I think that's Buttigieg right now. I think yeah. I, I think the question for Sanders' vote total is how many people he can draw away from Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Because other than that, as we saw in Iowa, he has a ceiling. Yes, he does. You know, he has he has absolutely loyal supporters, but there's a limit to that. Yes, fiercely loyal. Yeah. But. 
well, quality the, versus quantity perhaps comes into play at a certain point. Yep. And there's still one last debate before the primary. And um, people that remember the 2016 race might remember that um, that's in the GOP primary. That is when Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey knocked out, in a sense, Marco Rubio mm-hmm. um, with some brutal mm-hmm. remarks or, a, mm-hmm. you know, a very take, a good takedown, strong takedown. So something like that could happen, and, you know, who knows? Yeah, and the final debate in 2008 was, was important between uh, Barack Obama and, uh, and Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. in a similar way. Well, come back next week, and we'll see who was right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Up next, Hugh Drummond talks to Dave Heliologos. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Hugh Drummond here, and I'm speaking with David Paleologos, who is the director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. We're recording this podcast uh, on Tuesday morning. Iowa is still unresolved. So, um, David, thanks for joining us today. Hey, great to be here. And um, Iowa's still unresolved. Uh, what are your takeaways on, on what happened last night? Well, you can't help but feel bad, not only for the for the candidates and their volunteers, but also for, you know, the people who are tuning in to get a first look at who the early winners and losers would be. And we don't have that. And this is a strange occurrence. I've never seen something like this ever happen before. So we're in we're in new territory. But we've got, you know, tonight we've got the State of the Union. The Senate votes on Wednesday. We've got a debate at the end of the week. So Iowa could be lost in this whole process. It's good for the people who underperformed, whomever they may be. You know, people are saying it's Biden um, because he's not going to be declared a loser. And if he is, it's going to be after the fact. And it's unfortunate for the people who might have exceeded expectations. And, you know, that could be any anyone from Pete Buttigieg to Bernie Sanders, who was favored going into the Iowa caucus, um, Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, you know, I, I just feel terrible, especially for the senators who you know had their hands tied for two weeks in the Senate trial. And 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 now they can't even get a resolution on the night that we were all expecting results and they have to kind of figure out and navigate their way to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So you're doing uh, daily tracking polls and um, I know the the poll, your first poll uh, has uh, Bernie Sanders in the lead and he, uh, a large part of his support is, is with young people. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing. Sure, so you know we have Sanders uh, starting off in our New Hampshire tracking without any Iowa results, plus six points. He leads Joe Biden 24 to 18. Elizabeth Warren is 13%. She's in third place, and Pete Buttigieg is at 11%. Everyone else is in single digits. We have 12% undecided. But as you say, the the, the younger voters really is, is the reason that Sanders has this lead among 18 to 35-year-olds. He has a 31-point lead. He's winning 47 to 16 over Elizabeth Warren with everybody else in single digits. So he's making his strength among young voters stick, at least for now. 
uh, among you know um, that important group of of uh, of people, and uh, you know between that and geography, i.e. the counties that touch Vermont, you know in the north and west of New Hampshire. Um, those are two bases that Sanders has that really don't look like any candidate is going to contest. Hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, like um, historically in, in your polling experience, the, the, the role that young voters play um, in primaries and in the general election, I mean, traditionally you think of more reliable voters being older, um, and um, you know the, the the younger vote is always a little bit uh, hard to predict. You know anything that you're seeing that that shows that this might stick this year, or um, and also you know maybe what do you think he's saying or doing that's attracting so many young voters? I think it's his authenticity. Um, you know there isn't a lot of policy differences between Sanders and Elizabeth Warren when you look at it. Um, but it's the authenticity. People see him as consistent and young people can pick that up. Young people, um, you know, they almost like the fact that he's a caricature of himself in a way and that, um, he, he speaks to them. Um, you know, the age differential could be a problem though, because most of the polling, if not all of the New Hampshire polling shows Sanders leading by somewhere between, you know, uh, low single digits to 19%. So if you're a younger voter, you don't have any energy coming off of an Iowa win, and you see polling that shows Sanders winning by around real clear politics average of 10%, there may be uh, an incentive not to be as active, not to vote, and because young people are probably one of the most fluid demographics, that could be a danger sign. Um, the, the fact that people are going to be lulled to sleep thinking that Sanders is going to win New Hampshire. And at this point, there's nothing in the data that shows me he won't win today in New Hampshire. But especially young voters who might say, you know, uh, you know, maybe a St. Anselm student or an SNHU or a or a UNH student that might say, he's got it anyway, I don't want to stand in line, or I've got something better to do, Sanders is going to win New Hampshire anyway. So that's a danger too. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the other kind of feature of the New Hampshire primary, which is very different from Iowa, is the, is the role that uh, undeclared voters play. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So normally when you have um, two primaries there's a disproportionate amount of registered democrats versus independents but when you look at for example the last time there was a contested democratic primary with an incumbent republican president was 2004 and in 2004 john kerry obviously won new hampshire won the nomination um but if you look at the exit poll voter makeup of that election, and that's the closest election, believe it or not, to this election, you've got almost an even split between Democrats and independents. Now, normally, you look at like a 65 Democrat to 35 independent proportion for a typical Democratic primary. But 
because there's really nothing happening on the Republican primary side, Trump is on the ballot and, you know, is winning over 90 percent, 95 percent of the vote as he did in the Iowa caucus last night. You're going to have more independents rotating into the Democratic primary and just and making the proportions much more even. That helps Sanders because Sanders, well, he is an independent or was an independent, and he appeals to those voters, those people who are, um, they're not enrolled for a reason or what they call undeclared in New Hampshire. They're not into the party politics. Uh, and that's why Tulsi Gabbard is doing as well. You know, in our, in our tracking last night, Tulsi Gabbard was getting 5% in the poll, 1% from registered Democrats, 12% from registered hmm. from those people who are undeclared. So it's clear to me that you've got some independents who are conservative, who are supporting people like Tulsi Gabbard, and then you've got some people who are just anti-party but lean Democrat who are supporting people like Bernie Sanders. And so they're going to play a bigger role, I think, because of the Kerry statistic in 2004 than a lot of people are anticipating. That's very interesting. Again, we're recording this on, on Tuesday, um, which is uh, one week away from, from the New Hampshire primary, uh, the morning after Iowa uh, today. Um, David, so after New Hampshire, uh, there's another caucus in Nevada, and uh, shortly thereafter, the South Carolina primary. Given the way the 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 um, the way that Iowa kind of uh, began this process in, in well let's in a messy way, um, how do you see those two contests coming up? Uh, their importance and um, you know any other things about them? I think it's very possible that that could be another Sanders win, and the reason I say that is because if you as of today, if you look on Real Clear Politics, our poll, the USA Today Suffolk poll, is the last poll that was uh, recorded in Nevada, and that was taken in early early January. And that poll showed Biden only plus one. In our prior poll in September of last year, Biden was plus four. So that tells me that that before you know Sanders was making these great polling gains in in mid late january as he has in not only the national polling but in all of the state polling that sanders is probably quite higher than that and probably leads biden right now even in nevada and so when you think about it we don't know the results of the iowa caucuses but most people believe that sanders is is, is in that top tier maybe he won or maybe he finished second and all of the polling right now shows him winning New Hampshire, and I'm saying to you, I think he has the trajectory to be leading right now in Nevada. That's my own personal opinion. Um, you're looking at a, a candidate who's potentially going to win the first three contests. Now, they're not going to have the fanfare that others would would have, and you know, you don't, you, you have an Iowa caucus, no matter, even if he does uh, win the Iowa caucuses, people are not going to trust the results, and you're going to have even Democrats and prominent Democrats saying that, you know, you can't you can't believe it. you can't believe it because they were there were technical issues. Mm -hmm. So but, you know, Sanders winning in New Hampshire at this point looks pretty good. You know, again, anything can happen. You have 12 percent undecided. You know, people could drop out of the race and so on. But 
I think there's a very strong case that he could win all three of the first three, which would put him in a very good position in South Carolina. He is not winning South Carolina currently, but he has made some gains, as I say, from some of that mid-late January polling. In the most recent Post and Courier poll, he was trailing Biden, but only by five points. In prior polling, he was trailing Biden by 22 points. So that tells me that, again, he has momentum. He, he's not winning South Carolina as of today, but he's certainly, you know, moving in the right direction. And, you know, if he does string together wins in the first three uh, contests, chances are that there will be some pin action and some added momentum to Sanders in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And then um, Super Tuesday follows after that, and Michael Bloomberg seems to be focused uh, entirely on on that in California and I am curious how uh, curious for your thoughts on that and then second you know how um, you have a lot of, of experience here how soon do you think we'll get we'll get to a point where we have a, a nominee it, this is just an unconventional year starting with what happened last night so there's no way to tell I mean Bloomberg hasn't really got traction in California the, the real clear politics average only has been just under 5%. So he has a ways to go, even though he spent a lot of seed money to get people thinking and talking about him. But I think if Biden were to falter and his money were to dry up and Klobuchar and Buttigieg were not equipped to fill in that moderate lane, I could see a scenario, and again, this is is less of polling and more as, as a political strategist, of Bloomberg now framing the Democratic primary as a two-person race between Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg. And he would do his his darndest to try and depict Sanders as being out of touch and not, not being the best opponent against Donald Trump. Um, whereas he would, you know, you know, talk about being mayor of New York and use his wealth, ironically, you know, a, a, a billionaire taking on Sanders in a two-person race you know, life has its ironies, mm. and uh, and if and if that were to do him in, or at least s- slow down his progress, then you're going to have a broken convention, where a lot of these candidates are going to have pieces, and you know you're going to end up. It's going to be deal making time at that point, um, if uh, if if Bernie's momentum is slowed down or stopped. Mm. Very strange times. Um, anything else uh, that you want to share with us today? Now, we'll be watching, you know, three different pieces in the New Hampshire tracking. So, you know, the, the results will be broadcast every night on WBZ TV, Channel 4, if you're in this local area. John Keller will be presenting our results. Boston Globe will go online every night at 11. And we'll be watching the different demographic breakdowns of the movements, behind the movements, like geography like gender like age like we've discussed in this podcast so and party affiliation so uh do keep an eye on the on the polling and kind of uh the in the weeds numbers that we tend to follow that sometimes can help us understand why certain candidates are trending a certain way well david thank you you're very busy and you've been very generous with your time and we'll be watching closely thank you for joining us thank you all right And now, 
Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Kyan. Hello, Tom. Episode 79? 79. Special wow. episode this week. We shook things up a little bit. We did. Yeah, we've been talking. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world this week of politics, in case you didn't know, which I'm sure you did. Our president was acquitted of impeachment this week. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we wanted to talk about, or what I wanted to ask you about, was Senator Mitt Romney, who made a decision I think few expected, um, and I think really courageous, um, and did what he felt was right in voting in favor of impeachment. Um, really against the party, and he's Not already once, but been, twice. yeah, and already been, you know, lambasted on social media and and otherwise. So, Senator Romney, former governor of Massachusetts, for anyone who doesn't know, it was um, heroic, to be very honest with you. I mean, to be the only one to step out from your party and not go along with the party regulars and leadership um, to protect this this president. I, I think took an extreme act of courageousness, to be very honest with you. Um, there were there were some other members, though. We, we have a senator from, from uh, North Carolina. We have a senator, Democratic senator from West Virginia. We have another senator from Montana, all Democrats, who come from states that voted for Trump in, by huge margins. Mm-hmm. And they, too, are heroic. For, the, for staying in the fold and doing what their conscience told them to do. And not thinking just about re-election. And thinking not only about their own well-being from an electability point of view. Yeah. Um, Mitt Romney, I thought, was, I thought as he spoke out on the floor, I, I thought he was really quite articulate about why he did what he did, the importance of the oath of office mm-hmm. and the pledge that he took for God and country he put ahead of his own well-being. And while doing so, you know, cautioned everybody that he would be severely criticized by Republicans. And in fact, over the last hours, he's been called a traitor in public. He's been called somebody that should have stuck with the tribe in public. And and this wasn't in the Senate, no, the House. It wasn't in the Capitol. It was at home in Utah, where other Republicans passing him by have just kind of told him in a taunting fashion how they felt about his action. I know, I know one thing. I know for one sure thing that his kids will be proud of him forever. Yeah. And you know that kind of says it all in my book. Well, it was well. It was it was a it was really. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's really heartwarming to see, and it kind of instilled some some faith where I think a lot of people had lost it. Not in him, but just in, yeah. in this idea and um, that he remained true to his convictions. And it should be noted that this is a man who. Who ran for president? Um, so for for him to make that call, I think gives it even that much more gravity. I think that's right. I, I also think, and I say this as uh, I was a Democrat, but as an American citizen, I'm proud of what he did, and he ought to take a lot of pride in what he did. Mm-hmm. And for as many people that might be saying a critical word about him, there are that many more on the other side applauding him, patting him on the back, and saying. Uh, you know, you're one of four people who did the right thing, and do, and, and and not not because of anything personal, but of any personal gain that would have come from it, but did the right thing for the country, for the United States of America. Yeah. So, cheers to Mitt Romney this week. Cheers to Mitt Romney. Cheers to the process, onward and upward to New Hampshire, and let's see who the nominee is going to be for. We know who the nominee in the Republican Party is going to be, mm-hmm. Bill Weld, notwithstanding, but we still have a way to go yet with the. 
with the process as it kind of works its way through other caucus states and primary states to find out who the Democratic nominee is going to be. And uh, I, I think we have some interesting turns on this road. And stakes are high. I mean, even higher now. Right. I think, so. And I know that you've had others from the company talk about that. And I know, too, that we have um, David Paleologos coming in, a friend of the most wonderful pollster in the country who calls them all right. Smart, smart man. Coming in at, and kind of talking about that, too. So I'll leave the rest of that to them. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Cayenne. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website.